Hey, I'm Mason King, host of the IBJ Podcast. And before we get into this week's episode, I want to tell you about the newest podcast from IBJ Media called Off the Record with the Indiana 250. In each episode, IBJ Media CEO Nate Feldman talks with a different leader on the Indiana 250 list of the state's most influential leaders. They discuss their vision for Indiana's future, their experiences in business, and their advice for other aspiring entrepreneurs. New episodes are released on select Thursdays. So go subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform so you can never miss an episode. Just search the Indiana 250 off the record. Thanks. This is the IBJ podcast for the week of Monday, September 11th, 2023. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Chad Peterman and his brother Tyler grew up with their dad's business, Peterman Heating, Cooling, and Plumbing. Pete Peterman received at least one offer for the Greenwood-based business, but he kept it in the family and handed over day-to-day operations to his boys in 2015. He couldn't have imagined how much and how fast the company would grow under the new generation, which had a strategy that required a fundamental change in the business. From 2016 to 2018, Peterman's annual revenue grew 101% to $15.7 million. From 2018 to 2022, its revenue grew 560% to $88.2 million. Since 2018, its employee base has grown at roughly the same clip, from little over 100 people to nearly 700 That's pretty good for a company in an established industry that has been a staple of American life for at least a century. Chad Peterman didn't initially think he'd go into the home services industry, but he since has become CEO and co-owner. In this week's edition of the IBJ podcast, he explains the strategy shift that led to more lucrative work and an expansion from central Indiana to most of the state. And one of the key factors in the firm's continued growth has been its out-of-the-box solution, you could actually call it an in-house solution, to training and retaining employees. Peterman essentially can supply itself with as many rookie technicians as it needs as it expands beyond Indiana's borders and expects to break the eight-digit barrier for revenue. Here's our conversation. It's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Chad Peterman. President, CEO, and co-owner of Peterman Brothers. Chad, thanks for making time today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So as you know, Peterman Brothers has appeared in the IBJ at least a half dozen times in recent years. The stories are almost always about the firm's dramatic growth. And what is like a relatively unusual situation when we're talking about a private company, we actually know your annual revenue for the last five years because you supply that when you participate in the IBJ's Fast 25 program. So I I did the digging and here we have the first number. In 2018, company revenue was 15.7 million. In 2022, company revenue was 88.2 million. That is 560% growth in the space of five years. Does that match your number? That does, yep. 
super impressive for a company that offers a service that has been a staple of American life for a century. It's not like you discovered a new software <laughs> that suddenly everybody needed to use. We're going to get into this in a lot more detail. But you know, when I talk about the dramatic growth, uh, what one or two things would you say uh, have been most important to get to that? Yeah. So obviously learned a lot of things along the way, uh, some to do again, some not to do again. And, uh, you know, if I really pointed to kind of what has been the driver of that, it's it's really our intentionality around growing our people. We want to make sure that we have a place while we, uh, on a daily basis, fix furnaces and install water heaters. At the end of the day, um, we're really in the business of growing and developing our people uh, so that they can take very good care of our customers. And so we've really just overemphasized uh, training, development, and really providing our people with all the resources that they need to be successful. And I think that's been really the the true driver in our growth is is just making sure that that's front and center and uh, has allowed us to navigate the last really five years. So in 2018, we had the Peterman had about 115 employees. How many do you have today? Uh, today, we are uh, a little under 700 people here. Wow. Okay. So that kind of matches the the uh, the revenue growth as well. Yeah, for sure. How many of those are service technicians? Uh, technicians, I don't know the exact number offhand, but um, I would say we've got close to between four, between probably 450 and 500. Okay. About two thirds or so. Yep, for sure. So your dad, Pete Peterman, started the company in 1986 uh, while you guys were living in Beach Grove. You and your brother, Tyler, took over the day-to-day operations from your dad in, in 2015. But how had you been involved in the company up to that point? This is one of these situations where when you were four years old and you were probably running around the shop um, with wrenches and <laughs> trying to fix things, or, or did your dad kind of keep you out of it? Yeah, so um, I don't know that he kept us out of it. We were in and around. We, you know, cleaned the shop every week and, you know, we're obviously at the office and things like that. I can say as we grew up, it wasn't really something I was interested in, mainly because I didn't know how to fix anything and I still don't. Um, And so I thought that's what the business was about, right? It was about fixing furnaces and I didn't know how to do that or, you know, really took a liking to that. So I figured, well, I need to go do something else. So after I graduated from college in 09, um, I actually went and worked outside of the industry um, for a couple of years. I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina and lived there for a couple of years and then moved home in 2011 to start at the company. Uh, I think around the time we were about 21 people, uh, you know, really just kind of started learning the business. So my brother was probably more along the lines of he worked here during the summers and did stuff like that. And I think it was always his intention to get uh, to get into the business. Um, it took me a little bit longer to realize that that's what uh, that's what I wanted to do. Now, you went to Wabash, right? I did. Yep. And then what did you think you wanted to do at that time? I had no idea. So uh, I, I think broadly stroked, it was, you know, get into into business of some sort. But I really didn't know what that meant. It took me took me a few years after college to kind of figure out uh, where I wanted to go and and what I wanted to do. Um, and luckily I kind of fell into, uh, into what I do today, which is, uh, it just worked out pretty well. What were you doing in Charlotte? You said, 
Yeah. So I worked for a company uh, that manufactured adhesive and I worked specifically in the paper and packaging uh, division. So I went into big paper mills and packaging companies and basically sold them the adhesive they need to go from like roll to roll uh, as they're uh, either manufacturing packaging or or paper in some instances. So basically a sales job. You got it. Yep. Account management, making sure that all the accounts were taken care of and had what they needed and all of that stuff. I had a cousin who uh, worked real close to, uh, this was probably a couple of decades earlier, uh, Charlotte, uh, selling, I believe, piping. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, it was exactly what I imagined that situation where you, you get out of school and you're like, well, I want to go into sales. Who's going to hire me? Yep. You find a random company and they hire you. Yeah, exactly. That's how, kind of how I found uh, I found this particular company and my first boss at the uh, Purdue uh, Career Fair. They uh, we hit it right off because she wasn't looking for engineers. Uh, there were a lot walking around the career fair, and I said, "Well, I'm not one of those." So it uh, it kind of all fell into place there. But after a couple of years, you decided uh, not really. Yeah. So it wasn't that I didn't like the job. I think I just began to realize kind of maybe the opportunity that uh, that lay at home. Um, there was also probably a little bit of uh, of homesickness there because uh, I was out there all by myself and uh, probably wanted to get back home. And getting back home meant that, hey, I could maybe take on this opportunity for sure. And then, then how did the, your dad couch that? Hey, you can come back and do what exactly? Yeah. So funny story. So I, I called him. Uh, for, uh, it's actually I started 12 years ago uh, this week and uh, I called him in the middle of summer in 2011 and said, hey, I think I want to come home. He was excited about that. And I was like, hey, I think I need a job. Uh, and he asked what I was actually going to do. And I said, I'm not really sure. And <laughs> his response, luckily, was, hey, we'll figure it out, you know, come aboard and we'll, you know, We'll figure it out at that point in time. So I literally started without any title or anything like that. I just showed up on a Monday and just started diving into whatever I could, uh, trying to figure out and help wherever I could. And then in the meantime, I mean, Tyler was more uh, more active in the business. Yeah. So he had worked there during the summers and different stuff like that. He was in college at the time uh, when I started. He went to the University of Indianapolis. He was in college and... Uh, uh, then joined in 13. Um, but yeah, he was in and around the business for sure during the summers. And then you were back for a little bit and then uh, went to, is it University of Indianapolis for your MBA? Yeah. So I actually came back in 11 and I started uh, grad school, I believe that the following spring, I think in um, May of, uh, or maybe in January of, of 2012. Um, and then graduated from there in 14. So at that point, you had an idea, yeah, if, if I'm going to contribute to this company, I need these MBA skills. Yeah. And, and the, getting my MBA was always something that I think even graduating from college, like I had on my radar um, as I wanted to do. And so moving back home, it, it kind of all aligned. Uh, I actually moved in with my brother who was living in a house close by campus. So he and I lived together um, and I would work during the day and go to school at night. And uh, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. We still joke about those days. Let me ask you, knowing what you know today, how helpful was that MBA degree? I always remember I had a lot of great stories because what we talked about, I was able to go do like the next day. Um, whereas, you know, people from say Cummins or Lilly or something like that, you know, their, their ability to go 
make those changes or, you know, test out what we just talked about was rather limited, but, you know, I had my hands on the, on the wheel, so to speak, um, and was able to really, um, I think get a lot out of the MBA simply because I was living it, um, at the time and, and was able to, uh, to really take those lessons and, and put them, put them to use rather quickly, as opposed to kind of putting them on the shelf, waiting till that role came about. And then, oh yeah, let me try to remember that type thing. Was, can you remember any particular aha moment where, you talked about something in class that week and then you went to work and said, hey, wait a second, we can do this. One of the things that I took away was just the use of data, analyzing it and understanding it. Um, that was a big kind of aha for me of taking some some of the data classes involved in the MBA program and understanding, okay, this is stuff's really powerful. How can we leverage that type of stuff? And so I think what spawned out of that was a lot of tracking and spreadsheets and different stuff like that of, hey, you know, even though we're small, like this could be, you know, super powerful and really influence kind of the decisions we make on the day to day. So probably not something that was on your dad's radar at the time. For sure. Yeah. I mean, at the time being a smaller company, it was just kind of go get go work hard every day, get the work done um, and then keep moving. What was when was it clear that you and Tyler would take over day to day for your dad? Kind of the summer of 2015. You know, dad wasn't looking to retire um, at the time, but definitely looking to maybe take a step back. We had kind of, I think by that time, I'd been there four years. Tyler had been there two, and I think he felt pretty confident that from a day to day perspective, we could really handle things. You know that that transition kind of happened there. Um, it was also kind of a move, you know, prior to 15, uh, we were involved in a lot of new construction and multifamily work, which is kind of how dad built the business. And Tyler and I wanted to take it more in a residential direction. So it kind of provided a kind of a pathway for us to kind of do our own thing with inside the business and really build out the residential side of things while dad could still build, bid these, you know, multifamily jobs and, and different things like that. And then we would all come together to get all the work done, basically. Oh, that's fascinating. So, I mean, that was one of the, one of the switches that happened, if you will, or one of the, the changes in strategy that yeah. you know, focus more on residential service when my furnace goes out or I have a plumbing problem. Whereas before it was much more working with the construction companies. Yeah. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. I would say in 15, we were about 70% uh, new construction and, um, you know, multifamily rehab, apartment jobs, different stuff like that. Whereas today we're a hundred percent residential. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. Is, is that a particularly more lucrative area to be in or why was that a smart way to, to shift it? Yeah. So I think in the construction industry, especially in new construction, your margin can be really thin, um, as, as it relates to kind of, you know, operating the business and different things like that. I think it's also too a cultural thing. The culture that we wanted to build the company on and create was one that, you know, as I said at the outset is, you know, train and develop people, you know, a lot of commercial contractors and things of that nature. That's not really a high priority uh, in a sense. Yes, they train them, but, you know, creating a great culture and great workplace and stuff like that, it, yeah, it may be in there, but we really wanted to make that the focal point of how we operate and the residential side where there's, you know, uh, an increased importance placed on customer service and communicating with customers and, and so on and so forth was, uh, really the angle we wanted to take, um, in, in building the business. I would assume too that, I mean, when you're talking about 
construction companies building apartments, that's a finite, you know, job market. I mean, there are only yeah. going to be so many developers developing apartments. Whereas, I mean, you look out over, you know, the grand expanse of, of residences in central Indiana and go, all of these people are potential customers. Yeah, you got it. I think that's a great point. I mean, I think one of the things we too realized was that, you know, based on the economy and how people are building, like your business could be massively influenced by a lot of things you can't control. Um, and so rather rather than be at the, kind of the whim of that is to your point, there's, I mean, they're putting up houses here, there and everywhere uh, across central Indiana, even even right now with with interest rates the way they are, it doesn't seem like they're stopping building. They're, they're going up everywhere. So yeah, with all of those potential customers and the fact that, you know, from a heating and cooling and plumbing and electrical perspective, like if you're a homeowner, you're going to need us at some point in time. Uh, and we want to be there to help you out. Um, what is Tyler's role in the company now? Yeah. So Tyler's the vice president of operations. So he oversees a lot of our project-based work. So whether that be a, a, the installation of a new HVAC system or the installation of a new sewer line. Um, so he oversees those um, those departments and then also kind of our fleet and facilities as well. What was the point at which it became sort of obvious that you would be more of the chief executive and he would be more of a vice president? Was that awkward at all? Uh, no. Um, you know, we've been very fortunate in... Um, in running it together that, you know, I like to do my things and he likes to do his. He wouldn't, uh, you you would be hard pressed to find him on a podcast. I can tell you that much. <laughs> uh, that's not really his cup of tea. Uh, he's, he's more so the, you know, the hardest worker I know. He'll go out there and get whatever, uh, whatever needs to be done. He's going to go get it done. Um, and that's what he likes to do. Like, hey, just give me a, give me a task and I'll go make sure that it gets done. Yeah. And I think too, I was talking to somebody about this the other day. I think one of the things that really, you know, kind of fostered this was kind of my dad's outlook on letting us kind of take over. That transition can be messy as well, mm. um, especially not only your kids kind of taking over, but in our case, we switch directions of the company almost entirely. So, um, you know, it's kind of like, well, what was, what was wrong with my way or, you know, this way works really great, but he let us really make our own mistakes and really kind of carve out our own path, um, which I think was important in us understanding as well that like you can trust each other. I think a lot of the friction, uh, that's involved in, you know, say a family business or something like that is there's a lack of trust. Uh, or ego that gets in the way of, at the end of the day, we're all trying to get the same thing done. So, you know, hey, let's divide and conquer here and, and knock some things out. The great thing is, is we're family, so you should trust one another. Um, and if we all know that we're working towards the same goal, then, you know, there shouldn't be an issue. I would say the one thing that I've always taken from my dad and, you know, it's the basis for really kind of how we operate and how I really operate is, you know, dad was one that he may have led differently than I do, but at the basis of his leadership style was the fact that he cared a great deal about all the people that worked for him. And I saw that firsthand. I've continued to witness it. Um, and it's one of those things where uh, it, it seems so simple, um, but so many people get it wrong. And, you know, if you want people to follow, then they have to first know that you care. 
I think that's one of the things I've tried to kind of over index in um, is just care and compassion for our people. Um, even as we continue to grow and have more people trying to get around and know everybody's name, or at least, you know, walk around and say, hi, all the small things are the things that add up and, you know, ultimately create an environment where uh, once they know you care, they'll run through walls for you because they want to make you proud. They want to do their part. And uh, that's really what we've, uh, what we've kind of fostered here at Peterman Brothers. Yeah, I would assume that whenever there's any kind of leadership change, either through maybe like an acquisition or just through a natural progression of, of leadership, the the thing that people would most be anxious about wouldn't necessarily be is what I'm going to do change, but is how am I going to be treated? Is that going to change? Yeah, 100%. You know, the, the one thing that I've always considered a blessing was that I don't know anything about the trade. I mean, I know stuff about the trade, but I don't know how to like fix anything. But I knew that coming in. And I think what the blessing really was was in is that because I didn't know anything, I knew that I had to treat our technicians like gold because I couldn't grow this business. I, I can't go out and fix anything. So I've got to have them on my team and they've we've got to treat them like they're the most precious thing uh, going and make sure that they have a great place to work and that they love coming to work and they know that they're treated right. And, you know, they've got the right tools for the job and the benefits and everything that goes into making a great place to work. I knew that I had to create that because that was the only way possible that I could actually succeed in this, you know, technical business. Okay. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm, with more than 800 attorneys in eight primary Midwest markets and the District of Columbia, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right. We're back with this week's edition of the IBJ Podcast and our interview with Chad Peterman, co-owner and CEO of Peterman Brothers. So in terms of the of the growth strategy, once you guys took over and, and then your dad kind of at least semi-retired, uh, the main point of that basically was going from the, from the multifamily to regular residential, or was there another prong to that strategy? No, it was really that. So it was how do we kind of phase out the apartment work um, and then just place all of our focus and effort into growing a residential business. Um, it is completely different. There were some trying years there uh, when we were doing both at the same time, where because you almost have two different cultures within the same company. Um, you've got your kind of new construction guys, and then you've got your residential guys, and you're talking all about this you know, customer service and culture and all of this stuff. And meanwhile, your new construction guys are looking at you like, what are you, what, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, I just go out to the job site and do the work. It's like, well, yes, I get that. But like, if you could just humor us and, and play, a, you know, play along as we try to build this company, that would be great. Um, so those were, that was kind of the toughest part of the transition was just running essentially two different companies within the same one. So that how do you grow a residential plumbing electrical HVAC service company? And I'm going to guess that part of it has to do with advertising. Yeah. 
So I think having a having a great marketing strategy um, is critical. You know, we rebranded in April of 2021. Obviously, probably probably seen the the trucks rolling around with uh, our mugs on the side. But uh, you know, having a great brand, our marketing team does a fantastic job of making sure that we are everywhere. Being an emergency service business, it's not so much that we want you to use us today, but when you do need us. We want you to think of us. And so a lot of that was surrounded by marketing. You know, the other big part was really from an operational perspective, you know, to run, you know, today we'll run between four and 500 service calls today to be able to process all, to have all the material, to get all of the people in the right places, to make sure that everybody's taken care of and the right technician is on the right call and the calls are being answered and all of that stuff is one of those things where that's been the most fun for me is it's like a giant puzzle, right? It's how do we get all of these people aligned in process and procedure to deliver a really good customer experience? Mm -hmm. You know, the homeowner only sees the technician, but to run a simple service call probably takes anywhere from 10 to 12 people that will actually touch that call from beginning to end. So when you switch to the more residential strategy, were you basically just operating like in metropolitan Indianapolis, like the nine camp area? Yeah. So uh, in 18, we started a location in Lafayette. Before then, um, really up to, I think we launched that in May of 18. Before that, we were, yeah, just in central Indiana. So we've always been kind of on the south side of town. We're in Greenwood now. We're just up the street, technically in Indianapolis, but we're literally five minutes away, uh, right across the county line. Uh, Yeah, just servicing basically Marion County and then the surrounding counties. And so according to your website uh, now, in addition to Indianapolis and Lafayette, you're in Bloomington, Columbus, Fort Wayne, uh, 90 minutes away, and Muncie, about 60 minutes away. Getting establishing all those markets in just a few years. I mean, that's, that's, uh, it seems like a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. So in 2021, we actually set up, we set up Muncie, Bloomington and Fort Wayne all in the same year, uh, which was quite an undertaking. But uh, again, it really goes back to the people that we've got on our team. We found some amazing leaders for those particular branches um, and they are growing like wildfire in these communities that, you know, for lack of a better term, are probably a little bit underserved when it comes to, you know, professionals in the HVAC plumbing and electrical fields. And so we're able to deliver service, you know, outside of Indianapolis um, and other communities around around central Indiana. So we, when you enter these new markets, are you usually doing it by acquisition, by coming in and, and acquiring an established provider and starting your foothold that way? Or is it as simple as just establishing your own office and, and hiring the right people? Yeah. So a lot of it is just establishing our own office. So, um, you know, right now we're looking um, into the Terre Haute market um, of really just going in there and opening up a building and putting our sign on the door and recruiting some technicians and, and going to work. And we're really able to do that because of all of our back office is, is here in Indianapolis. Um, so we don't need a whole lot of staff to get started. You know, our marketing team takes care of driving the leads and putting them on the board. Um, and then uh, we hire the technicians to go run the service calls and, and help customers. But there were some acquisitions. Yeah. Yeah. We've had uh, we've done uh, we've done quite a few acquisitions. 
Um, we actually have um, as a group. So we have the six Peterman brothers locations uh, across central Indiana. Um, we also have um, three uh, soon to be four other brands that are outside of the state. So we have a brand in uh, Mount Vernon, Ohio. We've got one in South Bend, Indiana, which primarily services Michigan. Um, and then we have one in Denver, Colorado as well. Oh, wow. And those are businesses that you acquired. Yep. We've acquired actually all of those we acquired this year. So we acquired them. They run under their kind of legacy name, if you will. And then, you know, we'll continue, we continue to support them from, uh, from a back office perspective. So yeah, as you mentioned around 2020, so the company is growing and you're probably having the same problem that every employer in the nation is having finding your qualified employees. Unlike a lot of companies, you decide that one of the best ways to ensure you have access to job candidates, uh, good job candidates, is to create a school. Yep. Essentially. And I think at, at, when you started, it was a four-month in-house training program uh, for guys going into, guys and gals, I guess, going into plumbing or HVAC. Is it still a, a four-month program or has that changed? Yeah. So all of our programs differ a little bit in length, but primarily, yeah, about four, about Three to four months um, is is typical uh, typical track time as far as getting through one of our programs. We're really excited about you know that the school itself has evolved uh, over the last three years in a number of different ways, just from what we've learned and what works better and you know what doesn't work so well. And our director of training and development um, is actually a uh, a former principal um, at a school, so it truly is a school. And we run it like that um, with developing curriculums and, you know, uh, all kinds of job aids and, and different stuff like that. So it's it started as like, hey, we're going to do a school. That sounds cool. Um, and now it's really evolved into, you know, uh, a center of education that's ran like that. Is that a separate business or is that all part of Peterman Brothers? It's all part of Peterman Brothers, but uh, they run... Yeah, they run primarily their, you know, own curriculums. We have, I think right now we have close to 30 students in training right now. Um, And we do all of that training here uh, at our headquarters in Greenwood. We've got about a 5,000 square foot lab that basically has a house built inside of it. And so, uh, and it has all of the different things that a technician would see while working out in the field. So um, if I want to switch careers, I uh, contact you guys and say, hey, I'm interested in being uh, part of this program. Uh, this is a super selective program. At least initially it was at the beginning. How, how many of your applicants would you take? So we take the top 1% of applicants. So uh, it, the um, which is a really interesting um, kind of uh, stat for sure. So to fill a class of about 20 students, we'll get over 2000 applications. The want for education is out there for sure. People want this information. You know, if we had the capacity to train more, we would. And we're working to build our capacity. I think this year we'll train about 150 technicians just this year. So uh, we're really, really excited about that and where the program's going. And I think we're gaining some traction and, um, you know, some kind of notoriety around town as far as like, hey, this is where you can go to learn, you know, learn a trade that they're not teaching in high school. 
And so you've got to go somewhere to learn it. And so we hopefully want to be that kind of center of excellence where people, uh, when they think about going to get uh, schooling for the trades, they think about us. Um, and then, um, yeah, we bring them in and, and train them up and uh, really give them the tools they need to uh, start their career in the trades. When we first wrote about this, I think uh, we said that when you enroll in the school, you also are become a, an employee. Correct. Yeah. You, so you start collecting us out. Yeah. So one unique thing about our program that's unlike really anything that you would find at a community college or a trade school or anything like that is there, there is no tuition. Um, we actually pay them to learn. Um, and so, yeah, they become a Peterman employee on day one. They go through orientation and they start receiving compensation on that first day. And we also wrote, I believe that uh, you agree to stay with the company for X amount of time. Yep. You just want to train me up. And after three months, I'm like, oh, hey, I got this job offer from blah, blah, blah. Correct. Yeah. 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 So you keep, keep the, everybody in house. Yeah. That's kind of the two way street, right? So we'll, we'll, we'll pay you to learn and, and teach you up, but you're going to make a commitment to, uh, you know, be on our team for, for a period of time as well. Now, in, in the most recent article for our Fast 25 feature, so it would have been for uh, fiscal year 2022. Uh, we reported Peterman Brothers hired 300 people that year and doubled its workforce. And a, a large part of those new hires were from the top tech academy. Yep. Yeah. So uh, a lot of our students, the majority of our technicians now go through top tech. Let's say the vast majority do. And so we know that they're all trained properly um, and we've taken the time to to you know devote to them um, so that they're ready to go out there. So yeah, it's been uh, last year was a big growth year. This year's also a big growth year for us. Um, and um, I don't I don't know that we know how to do it any other way. Um, so, yeah, we'll just we just keep keep moving forward and, and finding great people that we can add to our team to, you know, hopefully strengthen it along the way. You can get about what about 150 graduates a year. So we have capacity to do 240 oh, wow. um, in a year. A lot of that is dictated by our needs as a company. So we don't need to produce 100, 240 yet, but we know that we can grow into that um, in the coming years. So this year, you think you would have about another 150? Yep, should. Just from the program? Yep, you got it. So are you in, in danger of accidentally flooding a particular market with service people? Or do you say, hey, some of you guys need to go to Muncie because we're short in Muncie? Uh, how do you just dis disperse the, these people in a way that's advantageous to you? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So typically in a top tech class, we will uh, we will recruit um, based on that branch's needs. So, you know, for instance, if Muncie needs two technicians, well, then we'll train two for Muncie. But if Lafayette only needs one, well, then we'll only recruit one person that lives in Lafayette um, to join the team. In some instances, we'll have students that live in Indy that may work at a different branch for a time, but typically uh, we'll just recruit out of those areas and then they come here to Greenwood for school. So you mentioned you are looking now in Terre Haute? Yes. Yep. So how many people would you start with? How many technicians would you start with in Terre Haute, you think? Uh, probably three or four. Are you still mostly putting technicians in the kind of the nine county Indianapolis area. 
Yeah, yeah. Indianapolis is is by far our biggest uh, biggest branch and and continues to be. I think you got a bigger market, and you know we've been here for thirty six years. Well, that's really fascinating. It, it, it makes it sound like there's really no, no ceiling, <laughs> almost for for how yeah. long you could grow. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I think a, the most recent kind of market share study said that we own like four percent of the market share in Indianapolis. Oh wow! Okay, so there's a yeah, lot. So there's, of- a, there's a lot of room to grow, um, especially if you think about you know how fast Fishers and Zionsville and Brownsburg and all these places that are kind of in and around the city are growing. It's it's kind of crazy to think about the amount of work that is that is out there and the amount of homeowners that you know need a provider to help them out with with one thing or the other. Uh, how about expanding into uh, or further into other states nearby? Yeah, so we're currently uh, along with Terre Haute, we're we're looking at the uh, Louisville market, the Dayton market, and the Champaign Illinois market. Um, so that'll put us just over the uh, just over the border, and then those would be Peterman Brothers branded locations. So yeah, definitely looking to continue to expand and and uh, and grow uh, to serve customers. Well, this has been great. You know, I I know that we're going to see you uh, again in a few months. <laughs> In the past 25, I hope. So it'll be fascinating to see where you are then. Any predictions? Yeah, uh, I would think um, with last year and this year, uh, we should give ourselves a pretty good shot. So that would be, I think, four or five in a row, which is which is really exciting and, and something our team definitely, definitely celebrates. Is it too early to uh, estimate what the revenue might be? Well, maybe. Uh, we've still got four months left. Uh, but I would say we'll finish probably between 120 and 130 million. Wow. Quite a bit. Yeah. Over that with 88, I think it was last year. Yeah. All right. Well then let's check in then. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate it as well. My thanks again to Chad Peterman and folks, before you get on with the rest of your week, there are a few stories in the latest issue of IBJ. I'd like to bring to your attention. First up, as Mina Starziak Hawk wraps up production of HGTV home renovation staple Good Bones, she's airing her frustration with Indianapolis's Department of Metropolitan Development and Department of Business and Neighborhood Services. Dave Lindquist details how Hawk's company butted heads with city planners and how they're responding. Also in this week's issue, Megan Fernandez explains how the founder and CEO of medical device software firm Greenlight Guru has created a world-class training arena for youth basketball players in Indianapolis. And John Russell outlines how independent physicians in Indiana are teaming up to push back against regulatory and economic pressures. Again, you can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at ibj.com. And thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week.